Well, tonight we're going to back to the, uh, our study in the book of Romans. <clears throat> so you want to start making your way to that uh, book. We're going to be in the ninth chapter here just in a few moments. The book of Romans um, was the first book that I preached through when I came here almost 18 years ago. And uh, this particular time through the book is one of the most unique studies we've ever had, or probably one of the most unique studies you're ever going to be in any uh, through a, a book study in, in the sense of chronology because we're completely out of order. Now, some of you who are, know, are, are new don't know this, <clears throat> but we started this particular study back in 2019 as I was preparing to head off to uh, Russia to teach the second half of the book <clears throat> to a group of Russian pastors that we partner with in that uh, in, in country there. And, and this most current study uh, that we're going through, I originally started off in chapter 1 because it had been a long time since I'd been in the book, a long time since the church had been in the book, so I started doing a very quick study of the beginning chapters. And I was about halfway through chapter 5 when I realized I'm not going to make it. Uh, I was falling further and further behind in my preparation for the second half of the book that I was tasked with teaching. And, and so what I did is I stopped through halfway through chapter 5, then skipped over chapters 6, 7, and 8, and then jumped into the beginning of uh, chapter 9. Uh, just like I said then, I'll repeat this, but it's just kind of like in those uh, Star Trek movies or Star Trek TV show, right? You're Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock are in a jam, and uh, they're, they're about to come to their demise, but they always yelled, beam me up, Scotty, and faithful Scotty beamed him up, right? He uh, transported them. He scrambled their molecules, zapped them from one place to another, and then reconstituted them and unscrambled their molecules to save the day. So that's what I did. I, I cried out for Scotty to help me, <laughs> beam me up. So what we did is we jumped over 5 through 8, we landed in chapter 9, and I taught through much of that material as I could before I departed from my trip in November. When I returned, I, I just picked up chapter 9, 10, and 11 and went through all that material. And, and I think, you'd have to go back and look, but I think I preached about 10 sermons uh, uh, through about February of 2020 or so uh, on, on those chapters. And then after I finished 9 through 11, we went back and I picked up 5, 6, 7, and eight that we've been working our way through in this last year. Uh, and, and as you know, we finished with chapter eight late in the, in the fall last year and because of Thanksgiving and the holiday season and all that kind of stuff, Christmas, etc. We've taken a, bo- a break from the book of Romans in the evening, but now we're ready to pick it back up. And, and I'm trying to work my way back towards chapter 12. And, and again, I know it's just jointed, it's out of order, and I do appreciate your graciousness with me uh, because of the situation, but just the circumstances at the time demanded that that's the way it would be that as I prepare for my trip, uh, uh, prepare to teach and, and to work towards that trip that I was taking. So since it's not been a long time since I have taught through 9 through 11, I'm not going to preach through all of that material in full uh, right now. Again, I think I preached 10 sermons at least uh, on those chapters, and that's all recorded online on our website, and you can go back and listen to that at your leisure. It was always my intent to, after we finished 5 through 8, to jump over 9 through 11 and then pick up our study in chapter 12 and then, Lord willing, finish the book. And again, I readily admit it's kind of an odd way to approach the book, but again, just circumstances of the time made it necessary to do it that way. I I really thought 5 through 8 deserved a much closer attention than I could give to it before um, I I departed for my trip. So that's that's what I did. I went back there. And and so um, uh, we're headed towards chapter 12, uh, but again, 9 through 11 kind of stand in my way a little bit, and I'm not going to do what I did uh, previously. I just want to kind of do an overview of the chapters. 
my, my wife repeated it to somebody, but I was so enthusiastic at the beginning of the week, I thought, I think I can do 9, 10, and 11 in one shot. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what happened. But I am going to do it, Lord willing, in three, maybe four. Maybe four. All right, I'm just going to do a, an overview of the chapters. Because I do, because there's a lot of you who are new, and I just want to give you kind of an uh, insight to what's in these chapters. Uh, and again, uh, I, I thought because there's so many people new in the fellowship, it might be helpful just to do that. And again, if you want more detail, because I'm not going to give you a lot of detail, as much detail as I give you <clears throat> in the next couple of times together, it's not going to be as much as they're packed into those other sermons. So you can go back and listen to that if you'd like to in a little bit more in depth. So go ahead and take your Bible and turn to Romans 9 if you've not done that already. And again, when we come to chapter 9, we've come to a new section in the book that includes 9, 10, and 11. And 9, 10, and 11 really needs to be understood as a unit in order to reach a proper understanding of the entire section. And again, I'm just going to try to give you a high-level flyover of the chapters. And I think 9 through 11 in the book of Romans is a fascinating portion of Scripture. I, I think it's filled with essential truths. It's filled with <clears throat> practical uh, doctrine, and, and its focus is on Israel. The focus of 9 through 11 is Israel, God's chosen people. And just by the way, over 200 times uh, in, in the Bible, uh, God is called the God of Israel. There are over 2,000 references to Israel in the Scripture, and not one of them means anything but Israel. 73 references in the New Testament, each of them refer to Israel. So if you say that the promises of the Old Testament refer to Israel really mean the church, then you don't have a precedent biblically to have that kind of an interpretation. There's not one reference anywhere in the Scripture. And again, there's over 2,000 of them referring to Israel. It means other thing, anything else other than Israel. So 9 through 11 in the book of Romans deals with Israel. Now, 9 through 11 in the history of the church has been a section of Scripture that has been ignored, misunderstood, uh, treated by some as if it doesn't even belong there in the flow of the book of Romans. And somebody even goes as far as saying perhaps it was added uh, after the book was completed. And I think those who hold to that kind of view uh, suggest that Paul's great discourse, again, the main topic has been justification by faith alone, is interrupted in 9 through 11. And they would argue that the great climactic ending of the praise and hope that's found at the end of Romans 8 flows very naturally into the discussion of Romans 12 verse 1. And to a certain extent, that, that's true. Uh, at the end of Romans fits very well into Roman, Romans 8 fits very well into Romans 12 verse 1. But I can assure you that uh, Romans 9 through 11 are not an addendum. Uh, it's not some kind of rambling excursion in, into an unrelated subject. Romans 9 to 11 fits very well into the context of the, and the flow of the book, and there are many features of the first eight chapters which are not understood in the fullest depth they could be until they are seen in the light of 9, 10, and 11 in the, in the book of Romans. So again, Romans 9 fits very well with what Paul has just been speaking about back in Romans 8. Romans uh, uh, 9 very uh, intimately is connected with Romans 8, and I think naturally and logically flows from it. Now, you will remember, I hope, and we spent a lot of time on it, you'll remember the, uh, the end of that chapter. If you don't, you can just go back there and look just for a second, at the end of chapter 8. Uh, Paul's been speaking about the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, or the doctrine of eternal security of the believer. And, and the apostle's argument has been the great 
that great doctrine of our hope and confidence is uh, uh, found there in verse 28, the the hope that we have in that doctrine. Verse uh, 28 of uh, Romans 8. He says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. So it's God's great purpose that guarantees our final perseverance. It's God's great, great purpose that guarantees our final glorification. Again, look what he says in verse 29, chapter 8. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So the eternal purposes of God are to conform us to the image of his Son and to bring us to eternal glory. And all of this began in eternity past. All of it began in eternity past when God foreordained or decreed or predestined us again to the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ according to himself, according to the kind intention of his will or the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace. God chose us in Christ out of the, out of the mass of uh, humanity, the rest of the world. He, he chose us in Christ in order to, to secure for us an eternal inheritance. Again, to the praise of the glory of his unmerited grace. Therefore, God's eternal, uh, eternal purposes, God's eternal counsel, his will is perfectly carried out in time. And, and no one can stand against him. No one can stand against his purposes or his plans. No one can thwart his will. Look there in verse uh, 31 of Romans 8. What shall we say to these things if God be for us, who's against us? And you remember that Paul put these arguments up and, and challenges against the eternal purposes uh, of God, and in each one he demolishes, and he, he comes to the conclusion with an affirmation of absolute uh, certainty that in verse 38 he says, neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities or things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he's saying absolutely nothing or no one shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Because of God's eternal love for us, because of God's eternal purposes in Christ, no one, no one in heaven, no one in hell, no one anywhere else is going to make God stop in his eternal plan towards us or ever separate us from his eternal love. Now, you remember that uh, we went through all of that. It was just a tremendous argument, right? Just tremendously encouraging. And, And the whole argument was based on the nature and the character of God himself. And here's a theological term you want, uh, the uh, immutability of God, the fact that God doesn't change, right? The uh, immutability of God guarantees the fact that God never changes, therefore God can be counted on. Therefore, anything that he has purposed, he's going to indeed carry out. Again, our, our eternal security is not based on our effort. Our eternal security is based on the plans and the purposes of God, what he says he's going to do. Again, the immutability of God. Now, Paul, Paul stops and he asks or anticipates an argument. And he says, okay, that's great. You know, I mean, everybody who is a Gentile is going amen to this uh, eternal plans and purposes of God. But if the Gentiles are eternally secure in Christ, and they are, and nothing will ever be able to separate them from the love of God, then nothing can. Here's the question. What about the Jews? What about the Jews? What, what about Israel? Because as Paul preaches the gospel, uh, it's very apparent that the vast majority of the Jews don't believe the message. And why is that so? 
Has God changed his plans? Has God cast off or rejected his people, Israel? And these are the kind of questions that certainly must have been going through Paul's mind. Uh, and there's certainly the kind of questions that must have been going through other people's minds uh, um, uh, concerning the gospel. What's with the Jews? And, and maybe the argument's more than hypothetical, maybe more, more than just an imaginary objection. I mean, Paul himself was a Pharisee. And now Paul, who was a Pharisee, is now considered to be a traitor to Judaism. And in fact, he is one who now stands accused by his brethren as having completely discarded the entire Old Testament revelation. Uh, again, they hate him to the point that they're trying to kill him, Paul. So this section, 9 through 11, really going to answer those questions. It's going to answer those questions and other questions. And I think the whole section very uh, naturally flows from, from chapter 8. And, and chapter 9 through 11, those chapters are really an integral part of, of not only the section, but really the entire letter of Paul uh, to the Romans. Think about Romans 1, or you can just go back there and look if you want. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which God, right, which he, God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh, who is declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. So again, Paul makes a reference here at the very beginning to the gospel, which he says is promised or was promised long ago through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Where's that? Old Testament. Right, it's promised in the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophets. So Paul's saying, look, there's a whole lot of people who are not very happy with me, and a whole lot of people think I've completely jettisoned the Old Testament, but the truth is the gospel that I am preaching can't be understood properly apart from understanding the Old Testament. And the gospel that I'm preaching can't be understood apart from understanding how all this relates back to Israel, God's special people. Because the gospel actually comes out of Israel's sacred book, uh, the Old Testament. It actually comes out of the, the, the uh, Israel's sacred book and then through one of her most beloved kings, that being David. That's what he's saying. And again, he, the, he says that same thing in the theme uh, verses, if you want, of the book of Romans. Just go uh, uh, just a little bit to, cha- to chapter 1, verse 16. He says, <clears throat> Romans 1, verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to sell for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So again, the good news of, of God, the, the gospel, the, it's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. And again, you can only properly understand it as you understand how it relates to the Old Testament scripture. And how it relates to Israel, God's people. Again, Paul says the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first. Now, it's obvious in the context when Paul writes the book of Romans that the Gentiles got it, right? The Gentiles are following Paul's teaching. Now, they've taken the good news. But but again, the question is, what about the Jews? And, And that's a tremendously important issue. They are a tremendously important issue. 
Because God, made, God has made certain exceedingly great and precious promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, promises to Moses, promises to David. And, and many of these promises uh, um, really center on, on the person of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. But, but he's been murdered, or he will be murdered, right? Or in the context of the book of Romans, he has been murdered, right? Been murdered by the Jews at, at Calvary. So if salvation is from the Jews, if the gospel is to the Jew first, then why have they rejected the gospel? Because most at the time had. Why are most of the Jews in Paul's day in unbelief? Why are most of the Jews in our day in unbelief? Why have they rejected Jesus? Why have the, the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, rejected all that the prophets have said? And again, specifically, why have they rejected Jesus as their Messiah? That's the question that's in the forefront here. And there's a second set of questions, I think, that Paul anticipates and answers here in this section of Scripture, chapters 9 through 11. And they're basically like this. Does the nation's rejection of Christ cancel out all of God's promises to the nation? Right? Does the nation's rejection of Christ cancel out all the promises of God to the nation? Has God forsaken his ancient people Israel? Have they been replaced by the Gentiles? Or have all the promises that God made through Israel in the Old Testament been merged or dissolved into or transferred to the Gentiles, which would be the church? And now is God done with the nation of Israel? So all of these questions are swirling around in these chapters, and all of these questions have to be answered. Listen to me. They have to be answered biblically. They have to be answered biblically. And that's what you have in Romans 9 through 11, and that's why it's so important to understand it's really one unit of thought. Again, the subject's the Jewish nation. Why are they refusing the gospel? Have the promises contained in Israel's covenants failed? Is God done with the nation of Israel? Has God turned his back on them and replaced them with another, namely the church? Now, I'm going to have you do something. Since you're you're used to, like, skipping all around, just go and and skip to Romans 11. Romans 11. Has God turned his back on Israel? We'll let Paul answer the question explicitly. Romans 11, verse 1. I say then, God has... Not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. Meganoito is the phrase in the Greek. It's the strongest negation possible. May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. It's a pretty straightforward answer to the question, has God rejected his nation Israel, his people Israel? It's a pretty straightforward answer that says God's not through with the nation of Israel. So again, that's what this section is about, 9 through 11. And again, we're going to see that Israel is still God's people, God's chosen people. Israel as a group still has a great national future, even though at the moment they temporarily have been set aside. But all the promises that God made to the nation of Israel, he will keep. Why? Because he's immutable. He doesn't change. God doesn't change. And, And once he speaks, once he makes a promise, he keeps that promise. He keeps his word. Now, chapter 9 has to do with God's past dealing with Israel, and it's viewed from the, uh, the aspect of God's sovereignty. Chapter 10 has to do with God's present dealing with the nation of Israel, viewed from the standpoint of human responsibility. And chapter 11 has to do with God's future dealing with the nation of Israel, again, dealing with God's uh, uh, final purposes. Now, in the past, when God dealt with the nation of Israel, he didn't uh, derive that relationship with them 
um, because of something exceptional in them. Uh, on the contrary, there wasn't anything exceptional in them. God, God's dealing with the nation of Israel was solely because of his sovereign choice, his sovereign will. His interaction with the nation of Israel functioned on, on a level of mercy. That's how he dealt with Israel, and that's how he deals with all men. So again, as we work our way through this, the whole uh, section 9 through 11, you're going to see that. You're going to see that Israel is still a chosen people of God. They still have a great national future, even though temporarily they've been set aside or bypassed. And, and then Paul's going to recognize there's a difference between individual salvation and, and national favor. And again, Israel's position, again, as the chi- divinely chosen nation, again, based completely on God's sovereign choice. If it had been based on works, it had been based on righteousness. If it had been based on the, the righteousness of the individuals of the nation, uh, if that would have been uh, what caused God to have favor on the nation of Israel, they would have forfeited that a long time before even Paul uh, showed up on the scene. So we're talking about the realm of divine sovereignty. So let's look at the text here and start working our way through it. Let's see that the tragic unbelief of Israel, or we're going to look at the tragic unbelief of Israel, we're going to look at Paul's personal connection with unbelieving Israel, and then we're going to see Paul's anguish for the Jewish people that he's come out of, that he's a part of. Verse 1 of chapter 9. I am telling the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience bearing witness of me in the Holy Spirit, that I have a great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So again, the the concern that Paul has for Israel is not an academic one, right? He has a great personal grief that burdens him to the heart because of the unbelief of his kinsmen, his brethren in in the nation. Again, they mistakenly believed that, that they were secure before God because of their racial heritage from Abraham. They, they thought that the, their, their lineage from Abraham gave them special status. They thought because of all the legalistic, ritualistic things they performed that they carried out, all of these ceremonies, all these rabbinical traditions, uh, they thought those gained them right standing before God. They thought all those things were inherently made them righteous, and that's why God associated with them. And that's not, obviously not true. We'll get to that in a moment. But it's probably difficult for us to appreciate fully and adequately the anguish that Paul has for his own people. I mean, he patiently endured a tremendous amount of persecution from them because he personally knew by his own experience how deceived they were. He knew how they felt towards Christ. They knew, he knew how they felt towards Christianity and how much hatred uh, Judaism or, or the Jewish people that had for both of them. Why? Because he himself was once in that very same category, right? He, he mercilessly uh, persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. He, he put them to death, those who uh, claimed that Jesus was the Messiah. So, there, so he understands where they're coming from, and he desperately longed for them to come to Christ. He, he desperately longed for their salvation, in, in spite of the fact that, again, many of the Jews, many of his own people, uh, accused him of abandoning the faith. Right? He's abandoned the faith, he's abandoned the Old Testament, and he's gone over for the sake, or gone over to the other side for the sake of these uh, despised Gentiles. Again, verse 2, he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Verse 3, for I could wish that I myself were accursed. Uh, it literally means devoted to destruction. For I wish I, that myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. 
So here you see how great the, Paul's love was for his brethren. Such a love for them. He said, look, instantaneously I would change places with them. Now, I, I take their eternal torment. If they could just see Christ and they could understand Christ, then they would be saved. Now, it's interesting. A lot of people come along and say, well, this is hyperbole. Back to one of the commentaries I was reading. What, what kind of speech is he using here? Hyperbole. Well, maybe. I don't know. But maybe not. Maybe this is exactly how Paul felt. Maybe this is exactly how Paul felt. It's not a figure of speech. This is a, a pouring out of his heart. So deep is the burden he has for the lost souls of his brothers uh, of the Jewish nation. Charles Spurgeon says this in one of his sermons. And it's uh, Charles Spurgeon speaking about what John Bunyan said. But he said this. He said, uh, according to Spurgeon about Bunyan, he said, he often felt while preaching that he could give his own salvation for the salvation of his hearers. That's how much passion that Bunyan had. He often felt while preaching that he could give his own salvation for the salvation of his hearers. And then Spurgeon adds this. He says, I pity the man has not felt the same. Honestly, that's somewhat of a scathing rebuke on almost all of us in the room who don't perhaps have that same true burden and love for those who are lost around us. We like to take an opportunity to share the gospel, and we should do that, but I'm telling you, when we share the gospel to people who don't understand truth, and we understand that the person in front of us doesn't understand that truth, and if they don't repent and come to an understanding of that truth, then there should be a certain sense of sadness in our own heart if they don't come to that knowledge. Not just that we're pounding them with the gospel. Repent or, you know, turn or burn and go, well, I did my thing today. Well, no, no, no. How about the compassion of your heart? Why are you even sharing the truth of that person in the first place? There has to be a sense of of sadness when we present truth to people who are blind by the sin and blind by Satan, and and they won't come to a knowledge of the truth. Or we really don't have a true concern for them. I just learned a whole bunch of stuff, and I just want to pound that person with the stuff I learned, right? That's not the way we were to present truth. Christ looked over to the over Jerusalem. What did he do? I'm sorry? He wept. That's the compassion of the Savior. That's the compassion that we're to have to, towards people. Paul says, look, I have such a burden for my brethren that I'm willing to be eternally damned if my brethren could just come to a knowledge of the truth. And again, no doubt it was that tremendous love that Paul had for the lost that made him such an effective and powerful instrument in the hands of God. It was that same kind of love that God would demonstrate to the world, to a world of unbelieving, unloving, evil men and women, such love that he would give his only begotten son to provide for their salvation. Same kind of love that that would cause the son in obedience to his father to give up his very life so that others might be saved that others might live. So Paul, he declares his great love for his people. He declares the sorrow that he has for his people's unbelief, thinking through the problem of Jewish unbelief and the Jewish rejection of the Messiah. And then what he does next is he's going to set forth the privileges that this great nation had. Nine wonderful privileges that belonged exclusively to Israel in God's gracious dealing with them historically in the past. Again, these are the things that marked off the nation of Israel from all the other nations that made God's special treatment of them that special. Paul says of the nation of Israel, verse 4, who are Israelites, 
to whom belong the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple services and the promises who are the fathers and who and from whom is the Christ uh, according to the flesh who is over all God bless forever amen so again it's a list a remarkable list of the privilege that belong to the nation of Israel nine of them he says first off they're Israelites and that's not just only a national name but it's really a name of honor they are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob later has his name changed by God to Israel. So they have a, they have a tremendous heritage, a name of honor. And, and they're God's chosen people. And they have been specifically in history loved by him. Uh, Amos 3 verse 2, You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. I mean, no other nation can make that claim. No other nation can make the claim that God was with them. Uh, that God was among them in a special way that God historically had been with the nation of Israel. No other nation can make the claim that God had done in and through them so much for the greater good of the world. Because it was through this nation and this nation alone that God would carry out his great eternal plan of redemption because it was through this nation and no other that the Messiah would come. So they're Israelites. Secondly, he says, to whom belong the adoption of sons. It's a reference out of Exodus 4, verse 2, and Hosea 11, 1. Again, God speaking as, of Israel as his son, indicating that, again, the nation of Israel had a special relationship with him uh, as, uh, in contrast to all the other nations. And 30 says, and the glory. It's a reference to the Shekinah. It's a reference to the visible manifestation of God's presence. It was found in the Old Testament in a cloud of fire that, guarded, that guided the, the, the nation by day and night and, and at times came and rested on, on the tabernacle and later on the temple. To the nation of Israel belonged number four, the covenants. So with this special group of people, God made special agreements with Abraham and then through Moses and later with David, a special agreement. God worked to, promised to work among men in such a way to do them good and to bring him glory. To Abraham, God promised that Abraham would be a blessed and a blessing, uh, that he would have a great name, that God would make him the father of many nations, uh, that his descendants would have an everlasting possession of the land of Canaan. Through Moses, God promised blessings to the people of uh, the nation of Israel if they completely obeyed him in every fashion out at, at Mount Sinai. But of course, we know that they failed. And the covenant was made obsolete. I talked about it this morning. The covenant was made obsolete and terminated at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, who perfectly kept and perfectly fulfilled the law by his complete obedience to the Father, by his sacrificial or through his sacrificial death for sinners. So the Mosaic covenant is a place that's been set aside for the what? New covenant, right? The new covenant that God provided everything for the people that was lacking in the Mosaic covenant. Read Hebrews 8, and you can read more on that. Through David, God promised that David's name would be great, that he'd have rest from his enemies, that there'd be a physical lineage that would remain forever, and that his throne would be established forever, and that one of his descendants would rule uh, from uh, his throne in Jerusalem over the entire earth. And of course, this is the Messiah. This is the Messiah that's going to be filled in the, fulfilled in the future when Christ reigns from Jerusalem over the nations, over Israel and over the nations in the millennial kingdom. And to the nation of Israel itself, God promised the new covenant 
out of Jeremiah chapter 31, Ezekiel 36, where God promised that for the nation, they'd give, he'd give them regenerated hearts. He would take their st- heart of so stone out and he would give them hearts of, of flesh and they would see and understand God's goodness. And, and, and through the new covenant, they would receive forgiveness of sin, that the Holy Spirit would come and dwell in their hearts and they would uh, uh, experientially know the Lord. And again, with the, the new covenant comes material blessings. It's a promise, uh, land promises, promise of a rebuilt temple uh, that again God promised to Abraham that will be fulfilled literally. The fifth thing he says is to them belong the giving of the law. And again, it's not just the Ten Commandments, but the countless other principles and standards in which God would uh, honor himself through this nation and bring them blessing if they obeyed. Blessings for obedience, judgment for disobedience. Then he says, number six, the temple service. Again, all the, all the rituals, all the ceremonial and ritual requirements that God set forth as the appropriate way, listen, as the appropriate way to worship him. What, if you get, what do you get out of the book of Leviticus? This is how worship is done. And who wrote the book of Leviticus? I'll give you an answer, not you, not me. I know we live in a time of the modern church where the modern church thinks it dictates how we worship. But that's not true biblically. God says this is the standard for worship. This is acceptable. This is not acceptable. So all the temple services just tells us that he, God, sets the standard for what is an appropriate way for men to worship him and to approach him. Number seven, he says, through Israel comes the advantages of the promises. Again, all the great messianic promises, all the great millennial promises found throughout the entirety of the Old Testament that will be fulfilled in full. Number eight, verse five, he says, those who are the fathers, again, all the great patriarchs, all the blessings that God gave through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, again, whose name is changed by God to Israel. All the sinful men that that God used and made objects of his great mercy and grace as he poured out upon uh, them and their descendants, just blessing after blessing. And then finally, the great last great thing here for the nation of Israel as a whole, which is unlike any other a nation on the planet, the ninth one, from whom is the Christ? From whom is the Christ according to the flesh? Right, so the crowning object of God's gracious dealing with the nation of Israel is that from them and them alone would come the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world. No greater privilege, nothing greater could come out of this nation. But salvation, again, is of the Jews. John 4, verse 22, uh, Christ says to the Samaritan woman there, the highest of all privileges. But obviously we know that they missed him. The, the very reason that he chose the nation of Israel uh, to, to be his people, that through them and through the many trials and afflictions, Christ would come from them. And Christ, again, all, promised all the way through the Old Testament scriptures. And they missed him when he showed up. Blind in Paul's day, still blind in our day. As blessed as they were as a people by God. And as blessed as they were by God, none of these great privileges guaranteed personal salvation. None of these great uh, advantages could save the nation or individuals. Because what they needed, just like what everyone needs, is they need to turn to the only one who has the power to save, and that being the person of Jesus Christ and him alone. There's no other name. So Paul addresses all the great privileges, and now he's going to address God's sovereignty. He's going to address God's sovereignty and the issues of God's word, and he's going to further identify the nation of Israel. In essence, that not all the natural is uh, not all of the natural offspring of Israel are Israel. 
that God makes distinctions. And then he's going to answer the questions, why have the Jews wholeheartedly not accepted Christ? Why have they rejected him? Because Christ has come from them. Again, they're the elect nation. What, what, what's the deal here? So again, in verses 6 through 33, Paul's going to give basically four different lines of reason, four basic reasons why the gospel of Jesus Christ is uh, not received and basically, and, and more specifically, why the gospel of Jesus Christ is not heresy, not blasphemous heresy as some of the Jewish people believed. Why has it been rejected by most individual Jews? Why has it been rejected by, by the nation on a whole? And again, their rejection doesn't impugn the character of God, doesn't impugn God's righteousness, doesn't impugn uh, God's justice. It, it doesn't violate the revelation that, that he gave uh, throughout the Old Testament Scripture. Nor does it alter the means of salvation, nor the place of Israel in God's ultimate plan of redemption. So first of all, Paul's going to teach that Israel's unbelief is consistent with God's plan. Israel's unbelief actually is consistent with God's plan, and it's consistent with his promises. And again, if I'm going to give a high-level flyover, I've got to move fast. There's a lot of material here. So again, basically, the, the next issue up is what's wrong with Israel? Why, why have they failed to believe upon the Messiah? Verse 6, Paul says, It's not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Neither are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. Now, if the gospel is the power of God into salvation, and it is, and it's to the Jew first and then to the Greek, again, why is the vast majority of God's chosen people rejected Christ and the gospel? Short answer, here it is, two words, distinguishing grace. Distinguishing grace. Verse 6 again, it is not as though the word of God has failed. It literally means to drop away or to fall down from. It is not as though the word of God has failed. Or the uh, um, King James says, is not taken effect or taken none effect. The reason that the Jews don't believe the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a failure uh, on the part of the word of God. It's not a failure on the promises of God, the divine promises of God. But the divine promises of God were not addressed to mere natural physical descendants of Abraham, but to those whom God sovereignly singled out to be his, again, by the distinguishing grace of God. He says, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. So again, God never intended that every single Israelite would be saved. Uh, The principle of distinguishing grace was always something that was operative in the Old Testament. There are always two kinds of people, uh, or two elements within Israel, if you want. The elect and the non-elect. They are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Now again, remember uh, from Abraham came Isaac, and from Isaac came Jacob, and again, Jacob had his name changed later, uh, later by God to Israel. And here in this context, Israel has two meanings, the first being true Israel, meaning that being the true people of God, through whom God made his promises, or to who the promises of God really belong, and then Israel, who are just the physical descendants of, of Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham. So again, that's what he's saying when he says, for they're not all Israel, they're not all true Israel. That is God's elect, God's chosen people. They're not all objects of God's divine uh, grace, electing grace, who are descended physically from, from Jacob or from Israel. He, he's just saying, look, just because one is ethnically Jewish 
or ethnically in Israel. I just one because somebody was born uh, ethnically in, in this country doesn't make him a true Israelite in the sense of the word because a true Israelite is one who's like Abraham, one whom God called and one who in return did what? Believed God, responded to that call, right? Both are true. Remember back in Romans chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, What shall we say then about Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was what? Reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham, right, the father of the nation, the one who's lifted up as a true man of faith, held up by the Jews, again, as a supreme example of a righteous man. God, when he first called Abram, that's what his name was then, when God first called Abram, Abram responded, right? God changes his name later to Abraham. But Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's how Abraham was justified. Not by works, but by what? Faith, right? Just very simply, by faith. And again, the Judaism in Paul's day had descended to the level where it was something completely different than how it began with Abraham. In Paul's day, the whole system was a works righteousness system. But genuine faith is always based on grace alone through faith alone. It's always based on grace alone through faith alone. It's always as God in his sovereign kindness declares ungodly, the ungodly righteous. Completely again by his own sovereign choice. Completely again by his own distinguishing grace. Why did God choose Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees and not his next door neighbor? Because God is God. Distinguishing grace. Right? God chose Abram. He made that choice. Now, it wasn't because Abram was a better guy than anybody else in the neighborhood. It's because God chose Abram. And if salvation was ever based on any part due to man or man's effort, then salvation from God would be a debt owed that needed to be paid rather than God bestowing his sovereign mercy and, and grace upon the unbeliever who simply believes. Abram believed God and God counted it as righteous. Imagine the conversation yourself at home. I think I've mentioned this before. Abram comes in, it's a hot day, he comes and sits down at the, the table in the house or probably in the tent, and he says, "Hun, uh, guess what? God talked to me. We're packing up and we're moving. She's like, Abe, I'll get you something cold to drink. You know, stay out of the, you've been in the sun too long. No, we're packing up. Where are we going? I don't know. But God talked to me and I believed God and I'm going to do exactly what he says. We're packing up and moving. I mean, it's basically that simple. I mean, Abraham believed God and God counted it as righteousness. It wasn't that he was better. It wasn't that he worked. He just believed what God had to say. Again, here it says, It's not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all true Israel, who are descended physically from Jacob. Verse 7, Neither are they all children, because they're Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. So again, just because one is born physically a descendant of Abraham doesn't mean that that person is necessarily an object of God's distinguishing grace. Again, remember Abraham, he had two sons. Ishmael was the firstborn son. He was conceived through sin uh, with uh, the handmaid Hagar. And then Isaac was conceived through Sarah and when she was old and she was barren. 
But God had promised her and Abraham that they would have a child, and that child would be the child of promise, and that child is Isaac. Now, if you remember the story, Isaac or Abraham initially wanted to bless Ishmael, uh, Ishmael, his firstborn son, to be the heir of God's promise. But God told him in Genesis chapter 17 that he would establish, establish his covenant with Isaac, through whom Sarah would bear him. And although Ishmael was born first, Ishmael's not the promised seed. He's not the promised descendant. But Isaac is the one who's going to carry that that mark of distinguishing grace, the the, the mark of God's choice. It's Isaac who's the child of promise. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. So again, very simply, God made a distinction between uh, Ishmael and Isaac. God elected Isaac to be the one through whom Abraham's descendants would be named. And again, God used the principle of distinguishing grace. He set his electing favor upon Isaac and not upon Ishmael. It's that simple. Verse 8. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. It's not the children of works. But it's right, not, not through Hagar, right? The, the works. No. It, but it's through those who God just makes objects of his distinguished grace. It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. Verse 9, for this is the word of promise. At this time I will come to Sarah and, and she'll have a son. So again, the, va- the, the reason is the vast majority of the Jews ha- have uh, not believed upon Jesus as the Messiah is not because the promises of the word of God had failed, It's because in the wisdom of God, the vast majority of the Jews were never included in the promises of God whatsoever. So the true number of those who are true Israel is not determined by one's natural descent from Abraham, but by God's wisdom, by God's choice, by God's distinguishing grace. Therefore, Israel's current state of unbelief is consistent with God's plan. Again, Ishmael's rejected. Isaac's chosen. Why? Because that's what God did. It's God's distinguishing grace. Now, if you don't like that, then Paul says, well, look, I'll give you a couple more examples to help you with this issue you're having a struggle with. Let me give you a couple uh, more principle and a couple, a second example here, this principle of distinguishing grace at work. And and I'm going to talk about a couple fellows named uh, Esau and Jacob. Verse 10. Not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for the twins, or for though the twins were not yet born, had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said of her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, no doubt it's a difficult passage from our standpoint. But again, in the wisdom of God, he chose Isaac, he rejected Ishmael. In the wisdom of God, he chose Jacob and rejected Esau. From Ishmael will come the heir of nations, uh, bitter foes of the the nation of Israel all the way down even to our day, uh, 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 passionate adherence to Islam. And from Esau comes the Edomites, comes Edom. And again, uh, bitter, vengeful uh, enemies of ancient Israel, uh, neighbors of ancient Israel. And as time went on, both Ishmael and Esau personally manifested hostility towards the things of God, whereas uh, Isaac and Jacob personally manifested a love for the, for the things of God. 
But God's salvation and God's electing love is always based on His choice, on His wisdom, not on the merits of men. And again, Paul points this out with these two individuals and their children, that he's dealing with the nation of Israel is always according to His wisdom, always according to His sovereignty. And again, it's not about the natural descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that should be considered the children of promise. It's those who are objects of God's sovereign, distinguishing grace. So again, the question is, why is the vast majority of the nation of Israel at the time of Paul's writing, and again, even into our day, why is the vast majority of uh, Jews rejected Jesus as the Christ or the Messiah? It's just consistent with what God's Word says. It's just consistent. Israel's unbelief is consistent with God's Word. It's consistent with God's plan. Verse 11, for again, uh, again, for though the twins were not yet born, had not done anything good or bad, right? Before they were not, before they were not yet born, had not done anything good or bad. God's going to determine the destinies of these two men. And God's going to determine the, the destinies of the nations that come from them. Again, it's the doctrine of unconditional, eleven, uh, unconditional election. Verse 11 continues, in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So very simply, God chooses some choose to believe, but he doesn't choose them all. God chooses some Jews to believe, but not all for salvation, unconditionally and completely apart from any kind of consideration of human worth or human effort, human merit. Verse 12, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Verse 13 says, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And the truth is, we read verse 13 and we what? Cringe. Might we cringe? We are so shocked by the words because the words that are written here in the text are so contrary to the way that most of us view God as being completely impartial and unconditionally loving of, next word, everyone. Everyone. God is a God of love. He loves everyone, right? Well, I don't know. You, you immediately read the text here. It says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. You go, so I don't know. Does God love everyone? And when you read Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, there's an objection that immediately pumps in the front of our mind, and it's uh, three words. Is that fair? Is that fair? Though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now Paul immediately answers the objection to the fairness of the issue. Verse 14, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there and then may it never be. Again, meganoitos, that's the strongest negation. There, there's absolutely no injustice with God. And again, the objection is answered in the strongest negation possible. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God. Is there? May it never be. Listen, God owes no man. God owes no man. God has absolute freedom to do whatever he wants. God has absolute freedom to be merciful to whoever he chooses to be merciful to. Verse 15. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now again, God's choice of one individual over another individual is absolutely, unconditionally, here it is, his. It's his. Verse 16. 
So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. I can hear you out there. I still don't think that's fair. I still don't think it's fair, but if it's true, then does that mean that I'm not responsible for my choices, my actions, right? Is that what that means? I mean, if God determines the destinies of men uh, before they even do anything, certainly they can't hold anybody accountable for their sin and unbelief, correct? Wrong. Wrong. Because the Bible teaches if a man's saved, he's saved because he's exercised faith and believed. And if a man is condemned, it's because he's sinned by not believing. God always holds man accountable. John 3.16, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 17, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through Him. Verse 18, John 3, verse 18, He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. I thought, man, you know what I need now is I need somebody to bring in some outside help. I need to, I need to call in the heavy hitters. So I got to call in somebody who's cool, somebody that people in the room will like. So how about John Piper? Yeah, amen, right, right. Yeah, I had a Piper quote forever, I know. Can't believe I'm having one now, but here we go. It's a good one. John Piper, no man will stand on the preface of hell able to say, I don't deserve this. Unconditional election does not contradict the necessity of the obedience of belief and faith for final salvation or the necessity of disobedience of unbelief for damnation. Pretty simply, he's just saying God holds people accountable. Belief in the Lord Jesus Christ equals salvation. Disbelief, rejecting the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, results in damnation. We're held held responsible for both. Now, if you say that's mind-stretching, I would agree. We've talked about this a lot. I would say that that's true. Listen to Piper. He says, if this stretches your mind to the breaking point, better that your minds be broken than that the Scriptures be broken. And even better yet would be to let your mind and heart be enlarged rather than broken so that they can contain all the Scripture teaches. I remember when I first thought through this 18 years ago, there was a guy in the room who would sit in the back row and write down everything I said and would criticize everything I said, and he took me to task on it doesn't say what it says. Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated him. said, my friend, I don't write the stuff, I just read it. It's what it says. We might not like what it says, but better our minds be broken than the Scripture be broken. Maybe we've got to take a step back, take a big breath, and just say, I don't understand it at the moment, but I need to understand it because it's God's word, and therefore everything that God's word said is true. Maybe I'm what needs to change, not the word of God. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Or who can uh, resist his will? Verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? So again, as ridiculous as it would be for a piece of pottery to question the purposes of the potter, how much more extremely absurd and irrational is it for men to question God's choice of a particular sinner for salvation? Can finite man, which is the clay, can finite man 
answer back to the potter, the infinite one, and question him about what he does? Does God have to find approval first with men before he does anything? And the answer is, of course not. Absolutely not. May it never be. Now, I get that men hate the doctrine of sovereign election. Therefore, some people come along and say, well, maybe God chooses men based on the, their moral character and the qualities of that individual. In other words, he chooses those who are good. Well, the Bible says over and over again that can't be the case because there, are, there is no one who is what? There's no one who's good. Romans 3.10, as it is written, there's none righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside because, because all have turned aside together. They become useless. There's no one who does good, not even one. And secondly, the Bible says that salvation is never based on human work. Right? Human status is never the basis of salvation. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. Well, maybe God chooses men for salvation based upon unforeseen or based upon foreseen faith. In other words, maybe you've heard this, maybe God looks down the corridors of time, as it were, and he selects those who are going to believe upon him out of their own free will. Now, there's a couple problems, at least, with that line of thinking. First of all, foreknowledge, biblically, as we've seen throughout our earlier studies uh, in the book of Romans, uh, foreknowledge means to know intimately. Foreknowledge, biblically, really means the, the choosing to set one's love upon. So, so that doesn't work that God knows beforehand who's going to choose him because foreknowledge, biblically, means that God is the one who, who sets his love upon somebody. And second problem with that idea, if God looked down the corridors of history, if that were true, that God only selects those who he knows one day are going to be of their own free will, select him. Ultimately, that means that man and not God is the determining factor of who gets saved. Right, because in that scenario, God looking down the corridors of time, it's man, not God. And all, all, all that God does is just ratify man's choice. And also that, that view, which is very popular, it's got tremendous theological problems uh, of God gaining knowledge. I don't have time to go into it, but it comes under the uh, category of open theism. Tremendous error. If God looked down the corridors of time to see who would believe and then who would not, then he made his selection of them, then listen, God would not be omniscient before time began. He would not have known all things before time began. And again, it's a serious theological problem. He's gaining knowledge. Again, it's a tremendous error called open theism. Now, there are probably other lines of argument that you could go down and talk about, sovereign election and distinguishing grace, things that men don't like about those things, but obviously we don't have time to unpack all of that. So therefore, I'm going to suggest to you that at the, at the moment, we're stuck. We're, we're just stuck with a very straightforward reading of the text. It says what it says. And we're just going to have to listen to what it says and decide whether or not we're going to believe what it says and then the big one, accept clearly what it is saying from this God who knows how to speak, doesn't stutter, and wants to communicate. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose, according to his choice, might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written. Jacob, I love that Esau hated. So again, it's the principle of distinguishing grace. 
is that God makes distinctions among men. So again, what about this problem of Israel? Why, why hasn't all Israel believed and accepted the gospel? Has God's word failed? Answer, absolutely not. Israel's rejection of the truth is part of the plan. Because God never intended for every single person from the nation of Israel to be saved. Only the elect from that nation. Only those whom God made objects of his distinguishing grace. They are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. But the children of the promise are. The children of the promise, they're the ones that receive the covenant blessings. The children of the promise are the ones who receive the gift of faith. Just like their forefather Abraham. God set his distinguishing grace upon uh, one man. And, and again, not based on any other thing that man had done or not done, but solely because his purpose and his choice might stand again to the praise of the glory of God's grace. God chose the father of the nation, Abraham. And he didn't choose anybody else to be the father of the nation. Because God is God. He alone is God. And he will have mercy on whom he has mercy, and he'll have compassion on whom he has compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Pretty straightforward. But we still got a problem. We got a problem with 13. I don't like 13. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That can't mean what it says. God can't hate, can he? You've heard this, and I've heard it too. Somebody said once, God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. That's good at a crusade event. If that's true, God hates sin, but he loves the sinner, then why, why does God send men to hell and not just the sin? It's nonsensical. If God hates the sin, but loves the sinner, why does God send men to hell and not just the sin? What about what it says in Psalm 5 and 5? The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You do hate all who do iniquity. Psalm 5, 5. Again here, verse 12, or verse 13, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now I wonder where that's written. You don't have to, you don't have to turn there, I'll tell you. Maybe if we went back to the original context, uh, the context we'd have some understanding, a different understanding of the word hate. It's in Malachi 1. I'll just read it for you. Malachi 1, verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. They, may, they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Well, that's not very helpful. But if I'm looking for an alternative idea and understanding to the word hate or idea of hate, because again, it says, Esau I've hated, I've laid waste to his hill country, left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. They may build, but I'll tear down. They may be called, that they may be called a wicked country and the people whom the Lord is angry forever. Now the truth is, Esau is a wicked man. And all who come from him are also wicked. Uh, the Edomites, right? The, 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 the Edomites are so wicked that God says he's angry with them forever. 
They're wicked people. Esau's a wicked man. And God just simply passes over Esau and let him go to the fullest extent of his wicked ways. And God withheld his blessing and Esau acted in wickedness. Therefore, he's absolutely accountable before God for his wickedness and absolutely deserving by God to be hated for his sin. Because God is holy and God does hate all who do iniquity. Now, hold on to yourself for a second here and let me tell you what the problem is. Not the reading of the text. Just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. The problems are heart when we read the text. Because let me tell you what the most shocking portion of verse 13 is. The most shocking portion of verse 13 is not that God hated Esau, but that he loved Jacob. That's the issue. And for the most part, we can't see that. Because our own hearts are so self-deceived. All of us have sinned. All of us are unrighteous. None of us is good. None of us seeks for God on his own. All of us together are useless. All of us are good for nothing. Listen, we are all wicked sinners, all thoroughly ill-deserving and hell-deserving. And we are all so bad that nothing but the shed blood of the second person of the Holy Trinity, the dear Lord Jesus Christ, could ever save us or ever reconcile us to God the Father. The most shocking portion of verse 13 is that God loved Jacob, who is a deceiver, a supplanter, a crook, and a man just like us. A man just like us. A man just like his brother from the same mother, from the same father. They're sharing the same womb. Before the twins were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And really what's on display in verse 13 is neither one of those fellows. It's not Jacob or Esau. The person who is on display in verse 13 is God. The God of all grace, the God of all mercy. The fact that God chose Jacob. The fact that God would choose any of us. The fact that God would make us objects of his mercy and his distinguishing grace is cause for us all to what? Praise the glory of his grace. God passed over fallen angels. God passed over certain men. And God chooses to set his love upon other fallen men. For what reason? In order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand again to the praise of the glory of his grace. That's the issue. Oh, and I pray we don't miss that point, right? Don't miss that point. The problem, unbelieving Israel. The answer, not all Israel is Israel. Proposition declared. It is not as though the word of God has failed. The answer, that's true. God's word has not failed. You can count on God forever and always. The principle set forth in the whole section we just worked our way through, distinguishing grace. I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Got two historical examples. You've got Ishmael and Isaac and Esau and Jacob. Again, the supposed difficulties with that whole passage are mostly due to the fact that we think we're okay. We think that there's something lovely in us for God to choose us for salvation. Mostly due to the fact that we wrongly think we deserve salvation. 
mostly due to the fact that we have an unbiblical view of God. And we fail to see the, the glory of God. And we fail to see the glory of God in the salvation of men. We fail to see our utter depravity before God. We fail to see that we are just like all these fellows, sinners. And, and left go to our own direction, we would do greater and greater sin and become greater, involved in greater and greater wickedness. Except for the distinguishing grace and mercy of our God in our own lives, we all too would be eternally lost. So you're here tonight. This is all new to you. I don't know. Some of you are new to the fellowship. You're here tonight, and this is upsetting to you. You don't like this doctrine. You don't like everything I said. You don't like the doctrine of distinguishing grace. You don't like the fact that God passes over, over angels and certain men in order to choose those whom God chooses to save for his own purposes. Let me what? You need to be very careful. You do not attempt to take the throne of God and tell him how he should save men. And I know people who walk in that area very uh, dangerously who think they have the right to sit in the throne of God. They don't, you don't, I don't, no man does. Be very careful. You need to be also very careful to not only sit in the throne of God or try to sit in the throne of God, you need to be very careful that you don't elevate yourself above what Scripture clearly says and teaches. Don't assume that your wisdom on these areas is higher than God's wisdom. And if you're here this evening and you've not repented and turned by faith to trust the person of Jesus Christ, if you refuse to do so, if you refuse to repent, you're going to get exactly what you desire. You're going to get exactly what you've chosen in time for all of eternity. Godlessness. A Christless eternity. You're going to be accursed of God, separated from Christ, and Christ is your only hope. Therefore, no one has an excuse for not crying out to God for mercy and grace for salvation because the Bible says through the prophet Ezekiel, God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. As I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn from his way and live, turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Repent. Come to Christ. And again, if you want to, join with those who are already the objects of God's mercy and God's distinguishing grace, then you call out to God for mercy because God has promised to save. 1 Timothy 2, 4, God desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart man believes resulting in righteousness, with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is the Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him, forever call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So you make your election, you make your calling, sure, by repentance and coming to Christ immediately, not tomorrow. All right? There you go. Our Lord, we're so thankful for an opportunity just to start looking again at this most wonderful book. Thankful for the few verses we made our way through and just stand amazed at your kindness to us and your distinguishing grace upon us. Uh, we do not deserve anything but your condemnation, but you and your kindness have sent Christ and you've called us and you've sent Christ to be the one who has, uh, through his shed blood, reconciled us. And we just give you all the praise. We're thankful for the salvation that we have, thankful for eternal life, thankful for 
uh, the knowledge of truth as the Holy Spirit dwells within us and opens our mind to a greater and greater understanding of that truth. Thank you for this great day of uh, worship that we've all had together, and we just pray your blessing on the rest of our evening and the week upcoming when, uh, Lord willing, if it would be your desire, we can gather again next week and worship you again. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.